Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. approach to tackling coronavirus is to prepare for the worst and work for the best. You need a totally different style of leadership. It's not enough to have a plan. You need to be testing, testing, testing. Britain and the EU, do they want to be seen as locking horns on an issue such as a no-deal Brexit when the economy is going to be suffering and people's lives are going to be facing so much disruption? Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. Good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing, and we're looking, of course, at the day on which uh, the government decides how they're going to proceed with the coronavirus lockdown. The health minister, Nadine Dorries, has tweeted that the UK won't be fully out of it until a vaccine for the coronavirus has been created. And as we know, that many people are saying is at least a year away. Meanwhile, the government expected to extend the social distancing measures, probably for another three weeks. Here's the health secretary, Matt Hancock. People can see that whilst we may be reaching a peak and the numbers aren't coming down yet, it is too early to say now uh, that we should remove the measures. Uh, and the point that Nadine was making is this will take time. And then the shadow health secretary, Jonathan Ashworth, says he backs that, but insists ministers need to give more details on their strategy. If the government don't provide clarity, then people can read things into misleading or badly phrased tweets by junior health ministers. And that's why we just need some greater clarity. So is it clarity that's needed or is it really a question of having just to follow whatever the science is and hopefully bring people on board at the same time? Joining us now is the former Conservative MP and Cabinet Minister David Liddington. David, thank you very much for being with us. Let me kick off, if I may, by saying... What do you think of what Jonathan Ashworth had to say there? Because um, there is a bit of an issue, it was clear in other places this morning as well, of a difference between some who think that having everything out there is the best way, let the public know everything, and others who think, no, only certainties and only fixed points. That's the way to keep people on board. I think that um, my, my, my general preference is, is for transparency, but... but um uh, certainly when a decision is taken and, and uh, to know the names of the people who are involved in taking the decisions. But I, I think that there needs to be a, a safe space within which any government, you know, Conservative, Labour or whatever, can argue about the evidence that's available to them, test the evidence, ask questions and then come to a decision. And they need to be able to explore different scenarios so that when they've tested those, come to a decision, they can actually explain why they have rejected alternatives as well as why they've decided on the course of action they've taken. So uh, at the moment, um, I, I agree with those who say that it is premature to relax the restrictions. Um, but I, I think that now is the time when the government needs to be working with real energy behind the scenes on what to do 
afterwards, and I think it, it does no harm for the government to say, look, we're doing this behind the, behind the scenes, but we're exploring all sorts of models, looking at what other countries around the world have, have done and thought about this as well, testing different scenarios. Uh, but not, I think it's too early for the government to come up with a, a plan. One thing we do know is that with this very new disease, even the top scientists in the world are learning day by day as the evidence is gradually mm. amassed from observing COVID-19 uh, in, in practice, but and also through uh, the, the work done in laboratories in searching for treatments and for vaccines. So what, what we may know in two weeks' time, three weeks' time, may be yeah. different from what we think we know today. So test the arguments, the options, do that preparatory work, um, and then I would say, you know, it's possibly, and I don't know, we'll see what, we, what it looks like then, but maybe uh, three weeks, a month's time might be the time for the government to come out and publish a plan on the way forward. So more broadly then, David, how do you think the government is dealing with this? Because you say it's very new, it's something that we haven't dealt with before, but at the same time, there have been a lot of slip-ups around PPE testing, care homes even most recently. Uh, it, it seems like a mixed picture. I think I think that it's all when, when uh, things are looked at with the benefit of hindsight that um, you know, people will be able to point to ways in which the UK government and other governments around the world have got some things right, got some things wrong. Um, I mean, what, from what I see is, uh, looking at the UK, is a government that has always sought to act um, on the basis of the national interest, I, I think you can see from the opinion polls and the way in which Boris Johnson personally and the government as a whole have gone up in public estimation during the epidemic, that, that people get that. They, they, they accept the government's uh, being motivated by genuine public service ethic, not, uh, not by sort of any political uh, motivation. Um, but, but they're having to grapple with something that is, uh, is new. There's plenty of countries around the world that... Uh, uh, have uh, had some struggles to get uh, sufficient PPE equipment uh, in country and then to the right places at the right time. And you know, there are some lessons for the future, I think, about resilience uh, and about supply chains uh, as, as, as well that the UK and other countries too will want to have a look at. And I think there is going to be a need to uh, for, for this government, as this crisis eases in the future, to actually grip and take uh, decisions about the future of social care in the United Kingdom, where I think it's been the, it's been the, the, it's a very, very difficult decision, because it will need a lot more money that has to be found from somewhere and from some people in society. Um, and uh, you know, therefore, it's a decision that governments of all political parties have been very nervous about taking, but I don't think that can be put off. Now, David, I mean, this has been a very interesting crisis in a lot of ways, not least the fact that it is, for a key part of it, including now, uh, the person who was in charge who put the government together has been, to some extent, out of action. Now, famously, of course, you were uh, Theresa May's de facto deputy during her administration. You were not put in the position, of course, of having to take over. Dominic Raab uh, has been. Um, as someone who's, who's filled those shoes, at least potentially, uh, what do you think of Dominic Raab's performance? I, th I, th I think that he has done well so far. I've never bought into this idea that there was a, a, a political vacuum in the British government. That's not how a system works. And, you know, though I've, I've 
was never in the situation that Dominic has found himself in. There were days, half days, when Theresa May was abroad, sometimes a few days, when she was at an international conference abroad or she was uh, on holiday in a remote part of the country where it was not easy to contact her. And I, I was on duty, to, and I knew if the phone went, it was possible that it might be a security emergency of some kind, uh, a terrorist incident perhaps, that where I would have to take an immediate decision. You know, and she wouldn't be available to be contacted as prime minister, and I would, I would be responsible for taking that. So I, that is, that's a daunting prospect. And so people who say, oh, Donald Trump looked nervous at his first press conference when Boris Johnson went into after all, well, I know what it's like when you're suddenly conscious of you know, what might be the news if the phone rings. Um, so I don't blame him, but I think he's grown in self-confidence and sense of authority he projects in his current, his, 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 his subsequent appearances in the current crisis. So, you know, I, I think um, the rest of the cabinet have rallied behind him, and I think that the entire cabinet both genuinely wants to do their very best for the, for, for the country. You know, that this, this is such um, existential importance to every family in the country now. Um, and, and at the same time, every member of the cabinet knows that the public will be deeply unforgiving of any minister who puts personal ambition and manoeuvring and political squabbles ahead of acting in the public interest now. So you know, I think the genuine public, public service ethic and political self-interest really do coincide on this one. And what about Parliament? It's due to reconvene next week. Lots of talk of it happening in some sort of virtual form. Do you think that can work? You've worked in there for many years. You know this institution inside out. Do you really think it can be dragged kicking and screaming into the future like that? Um, it's, it, it, I, think that I think Parliament has, to, um, has to, to, to reassemble. And if a lot of that has to be done virtually, that is better than... Um, not having Parliament. I th- um, it, it's not quite the same. I mean, committees, I think you can make work reasonably well um, online, although there are problems with that. You know, the, uh, if a, uh, an MP has a constituency that doesn't have very good um, uh, broadband provision, then, you know, the signal is not necessarily reliable. Um, and there is, a, there is a difference in meeting in person from meeting... Um, uh, online, and that, and that applies whether you're talking about a cabinet committee or a COBRA meeting, or whether you're talking about a parliamentary select committee meeting, because you can't read the body language uh, in the same way when you've, you've just got a screen in front of you, or, or just even worse, it's a telephone line. Um, and I know if I was chairing meetings, I, I, know, I, I would um, you know, look at my colleagues' responses. When somebody was speaking, if there was a grimace or... Um, Somebody or somebody nodded, and I think, ah, okay, so they're against or they they um, support that. And I try and bring that person in if they they looked as if they had problems and tease out what the problem was. Um, and same way with select committees that it, it yeah you can't you can't sort of look at the body language of witnesses in the same way um, uh, or, or 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 read the body language of all your colleagues on the committee at the same way if you're chairing it. it you don't get quite the same uh, sort, of, sort of dynamism as, as you would in person. But it, it's better than nothing. It means Parliament can function. And I, I'm, I would back what the Speaker uh, seems to want to do with trying to get in the chamber at least government statements and the questions that follow, question times, um, urgent questions to ministers and the hour questions or so on that follow that uh, back 
online um, because ministers, you know, governments need to be held to account by Indeed. by Parliament. That's how democracy works. De- I, I think the sooner Parliament can get back to meeting in person, the better. But in the meantime, we need to have Parliament back in some shape or form. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. And we start with Brexit. Back on the radar after the UK's chief negotiator, David Frost, and his EU counterpart, Michel Barnier, held a constructive video conference on Wednesday. They plan to seek, quote, tangible progress by June in the negotiations over their future relationship. And they've got three rounds that are going to take place in the weeks of April the 20th, May the 11th and June the 1st. If you want to hear more about all of that, we discussed the uh, new face of the trade talks, essentially, in a bit more detail on yesterday's programme. So download that podcast. Meanwhile, the government's coming under more pressure as far as its uh, provision to the health service is concerned because almost three quarters of healthcare workers, apparently, said the government is not providing enough personal protective equipment, PPE, and should be testing them more. The YouGov poll also suggests one in three feel the coronavirus outbreak has already had a detrimental impact on their physical health. The Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab, who of course is standing in for Boris Johnson at the moment, says the government is, quote, straining every sinew to ensure enough PPE is available. And then we're starting to get a better idea of the economic toll of the coronavirus. Total retail sales in the UK slumping 27% in the two weeks following the government's order to stay at home. Uh, This is according to KPMG and the British Retail Consortium. That compares to a 12% increase in the first three weeks of March. Everyone was stocking up on goods. Uh, The BRC chief executive Helen Helen Dickinson saying that hundreds of thousands of jobs are at risk within these companies and their supply chains. But one thing we apparently were stocking up with, perhaps, or perhaps aren't so much more, is alcohol, because um, apparently the lockdown has transformed Britain's relationship with alcohol. According to an opinion survey for the charity Alcohol Change UK, one in five people, that's equating to 8.6 million British adults, said they were drinking more alcohol more frequently. But to research surprise, one in three, or 14 million adults, said they're taking steps to manage or stop drinking. A smaller proportion said they'd stop drinking entirely. Just you wait for the celebrations once all of this is over. Then we're (laughs) going to see the real figures come out. But anyway, let's move on and talk about the Labour Party. They've got their new leader, Keir Starmer. So far, he's made a big bid to win back Jewish voters by dealing with the anti-Semitism problem. He's faced a leaked report suggesting that Labour officials conspired to damage the Corbyn election campaign in 2017. And he's demanded that the government comes up with a public strategy for coming out of the lockdown. So a week being a short time in politics, but he's getting a lot in there. Uh, so what direction will he take Labour in? And can the party, crucially, be reunited? Well, David Cogan wrote the history of the modern Labour Party, Protest and Power, and he joins us now. Uh, so, David, let's start with this. How do you feel uh, Keir Starmer has done in his first uh, couple of weeks now in charge of the Labour Party? Well, Sebastian, it's been 11 days and it's uh, been a remarkable ride, which is probably only the sort of ride you get if you're leader of the Labour Party. 
On the one hand, within the first three or four days of him being elected leader, he'd appointed a new shadow cabinet and backup ministers. And I think, essentially, by common agreements across the political spectrum, it's a very good, very solid Trump bench team, and it's a complete departure from the past. And so he really established his authority pretty quickly. It was also important that he won control of Labour's National Executive Committee, which was less reported. So essentially, he has won, in the course of a week, the power that most people thought had been lost to the centre of the Labour Party for a long time to come. And that augurs well for the future. The downside is that just as he's struggling to give Labour's position on the coronavirus, and just as he's preparing a position that is becoming more critical of the government, and I think as you have heard in the news just now, this is going to fast become a bigger political issue about how the crisis has been handled, which gives Labour an opportunity in some ways. So you get, in traditional Labour Party style, uh, the report of an 860-page internal document that was leaked and which actually exposes all the internal divisions of Labour that have been obvious for the last five or six years. Yeah, I mean, so it's, it's a mixed it, bag, really. It, it, it certainly is. I mean, it's been a, quite a whirlwind, as you say, nine days. Let's pick up on one of those things, or perhaps a more general concern, because at the moment, being in opposition is not normal. It's not in the normal frame of politics in this highly abnormal situation. It's very difficult, isn't it, to to be a proper opposition when there's really only one issue and everyone's pushing for unity? It is. I mean, I think, you know, Starmer doesn't necessarily have the vision thing, as George H.W. Bush referred to it in 1988, but he's definitely got the leadership thing. And he's definitely imposing, as an opposition leader can do, and as Tony Blair did, degrees of control on his own party as early as possible. But the real problem is, what do you do about policy? Because what you would normally expect is with four years or so to the next general election, you would expect Farmer and his front bench team to be developing all sorts of new policies on economics, on social care, and all the other issues that are dominant in normal politics. But today, we don't have normal politics. What we have is one issue where Labour and the opposition have to essentially be reactive because it's the government that's got control of all the facts. It's the government's control of the process. And there's a very fine balancing act between being too critical of the government and appearing to be unsupportive, yet at the same time asking relevant questions. And I think we've seen in the last nine or ten days Labour's opposition to, or at least questioning, of some of the government's decisions and the way in which they've been taken. That questioning is beginning to, to get sharper. And Jonathan Ashworth, as health spokesman, and Starmer himself, are beginning to develop what might be seen as the future opposition line. But in terms of wider policy, and particularly economic policy, you know, I think it's very difficult for Labour to formulate what it might do if it were in government now, given the economy is going completely haywire compared to normal circumstances. Uh, and what about anti-Semitism? He was very quick to talk about it. It was something that all of the candidates, of course, came down hard on in, in all of the hustings. Do you think he's done enough so far? Do you think he can stamp out this problem? Well, I am one of the few people who've actually read all 860 pages of that report, which I can tell you is, is, is a, a major test of one's patience and tolerance, just in terms of its length and detail. And I think until it was leaked, there is no question that Starmer had reached out to the Jewish community in a way that uh, Corbyn hadn't done, that he was making all the right noises, he was clearly going to be dealing with it, 
in some sort of clear-minded way, and he really staked out a position which at least he could build from. Now it's been hijacked by events, and he's going to announce an independent report into how that report got leaked, and an independent report into what was in that report. So it means somehow he's already got drawn back into the internal factional mire that anti-Semitism is really a cover for all sorts of other issues. And what that is interesting about that report is it actually covers a number of different areas. Some of them are about the factional politics of Labour's HQ. Some of it's about the way in which anti-Semitism was not handled in a managerial way that was in any way efficient. And some of it is basically just about an argument that says when the left took control of the Labour Party after 2017, they did better. So some of it is a political argument as well. And I don't think much of that has really come through in the public reporting of what was in that report, but it certainly causes a big problem for the leadership now as to how quickly they have to deal with it. Well, David, one thing that fascinates me, I mean, your book uh, was very much about how the left had, in after the 1980s through the 90s, tried to get back into a position uh, to control the Labour Party. They did, and then it went wrong. So what do you now see in terms of the future of momentum and the left in general in the Labour Party? Are they uh, a dead fort? Well, history is fast repeating itself, Roger. In 1983, when Labour went down to a huge defeat, the left had a choice as to whether it worked with Neil Kinnock, who was then the new party leader and from the soft left, or whether it put itself into a bunker. And it put itself into a bunker. This time, after five years of her being in power within the Labour Party and now losing power dramatically, both in the leadership and in the National Executive, it's got that choice to make again. And what we are already seeing is that the left is breaking into different factions. John McDonnell is now reverting back to his kind of factional leftist life of the previous 30-odd years and is now leading a group which is looking as though it will take over momentum. And people like John Lansman may well not be in it any further um, because they will be forced out. And so what you're going to see within the left is a choice. Do you work with the new leader? or do you become the opposition to the new leader? And one of the points about this report being leaked is that the different position being taken by different people on the left uh, in how they react to it is very much an indicator, I think, of the internal opposition that some will face from people like John McDonnell if they think he's veering away from the Corbynista past. So the left, in many ways, I think, are about to put themselves back into a bunker, uh, which they're going to struggle to get out of. Well, well, that's the issue, is it? Because we haven't heard that much from Starman. It seems to be that he is vaguely palatable to the Corbynistas, given that he was in the Corbyn cabinet, and then vaguely palatable even to the Blairites. Are we going to get to a point when real policy starts coming out and we're going to see those rifts emerging again? He fought a leadership campaign, Sebastian, which was devoid of real policy. He, He came up with 10 points that were vaguely supportive of the last election manifesto, but none of it was detailed. And certainly the shadow cabinet he's appointed is not a Corbynista shadow cabinet. But we don't know what he's going to do in terms of detailed policy. And, you know, the principal indicator of that is normally who he appointed as shadow chancellor, who's Annalise Dodds, who's in the centre, sort of centre-left of the party, but is not particularly a Corbynista. Um, But what is she supposed to do in terms of policy now? You know, doesn't know what the levels of debt will be. One doesn't know what levels of um, policy needs to be on things like taxation in a year or two years from now, given 
the measures the governments had to take over the crisis. And so I think in some ways, Starman's lack of policy is quite helpful to him because he's got all sorts of options that are open to him. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.